Today, I'm thrilled to share with you some thoughts about career development. Most importantly, I'd like you to have a real live case study of how applying some of the simple steps that we've talked about on this show of Brian Tracy's The Thousand Percent Formula can lead, even if by accident, to your increasing your income by a thousand percent every 10 years. Welcome to the Radical Personal Finance Podcast. My name is Joshua Sheets, and today is Tuesday, February 17, 2015. Today I bring you an interview with financial planner extraordinaire Michael Kitsis, one of the more well-known writers in the financial planning space. He writes at kitsis.com. This is a repeat appearance for him on the Radical Personal Finance Podcast, and today we're going to talk about his career. had the opportunity to interview Michael when I was out in Dallas last week at the T3 Technology Tools for Today conference for financial advisors. And I jumped on a plane real quick and shot out there. And one of the things that I was able to do was to do, bring, do a bunch of really great interviews. Most of them are very focused on the financial advisor space. And you'll hear that in this interview. Uh, this interview essentially follows two parts. The first part is a discussion of Michael's career, uh, and especially as it relates to conferences. And I thought this was such a timely topic in light of yesterday's show and in light of some things that I've been wanting to bring you here on the show of just talking about the importance of conferences as they might be for your career. And I thought it was a useful story of how careers can develop, even if by accident. Now, one of the cool things, if you know something can develop by accident, what about developing it on purpose? That's what we can choose to do. So I want you to listen to Michael's story. That's the first part of the interview. The second part of the interview, talk a little bit about marketing for financial advisors. So if you're not interested at all in marketing or interested in the financial advisory space, feel free to skip the second half of the interview. But if you ever have thought about being involved in any kind of business, you might want to know some of the information in that marketing space. And especially if you're a financial advisor, you might want to know about that. This is Michael's second appearance on the Radical Personal Finance Podcast. If you're interested uh, in listening to his previous interview on the show, that was episode 92, which we titled The Business of Financial Advice, Opening the Curtain on the History, the Present State, and the Future of Financial Advice. You can find that at RadicalPersonalFinance.com slash 92. And now as we go to the interview, I just want to say thank you to the patrons of the show. Thanks to the patrons of the show, I'm able to present this to you commercial-free. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, who support the show. Here's Michael. So, Michael, welcome back to the show. I'm glad to have you here. Thank you. Welcome to be back. Welcome to be back. Good to be back. I'm, it's <laughs> it's been a so, long three days. Yeah, yeah. So, for those who are catching up with us, it's day three of a conference. You can tell by the fact that my words do not sequence properly anymore. Uh, but yes, here we are. And these things search. are hard work. What, what time do you, you start? Early in the morning and it goes till midnight, right? Yeah. Well, so this conference is like kind by some because at least the sessions don't really get started until 8. Right. Uh, but yeah, you know, then uh, sessions go until 4 or 5 in the afternoon and then you do evening gatherings and you're being social and you're networking and you're connecting with people. Uh, yeah, I probably probably got to sleep after midnight last night. And Yeah. 
So it's a work. It's not a vacation. It's definitely work. Yeah, it's definitely work. It's not vacation. Like, uh, and I, you know, we'll probably talk about this later, but I, I, it drives me nuts watching people who go to conferences and it's like, hey, what did you think of the sessions? Oh, I didn't see them because, like, I, I, I went up and I played golf for three hours because there's a cool golf course nearby. Right. I'm like, all right, like, power to you for loving your golf and hitting the back nine for a couple hours, but, like... You're here at a conference. You will not have a better opportunity to meet and connect with a whole bunch of people that can improve your business and career. And like you're hitting the links for a couple hours because there's a neat course nearby you haven't played. And uh, well, like certainly in our advisor world, like we a lot of golf lovers. Absolutely popular thing here. So that's a perfect place to start. When you started your career in the financial advisor space, you were pretty green, right? You had, oh yeah, you... I I like I came straight out of college. Like graduated Saturday. Uh, Memorial Day weekend, packed my stuff on Sunday, drove home on Memorial Day Monday, Tuesday morning at 8 a.m., showed up at the office for my first job in the financial services industry. So I could not have packed it closer. At what point in time did you start going to conferences? Uh, First four years in before I ever went to my my first conference, my first event of any sort. and, and was really ignorant of, of the opportunity, the value, the, the, the possibilities. I'll give them full credit. Uh, I went to my first conference because the firm I was working for said, uh, you're going to go to a conference this year, so let us know which one you want to go to, and that's the one you'll go to. Uh, and I picked something that sounded interesting in our industry. So, like, I, I, I didn't send myself. I didn't pay my way. They paid for me to go. Even though it was available for me, they basically had to, like, give me a kick to tell me, like, so you're going to go to something this year. Just let us know what it is. Uh, so I just I was completely ignorant to the possibilities, what was out there, much less the, the value proposition of going and doing something like that. And for your first one, did you just show up, you know, maybe sit in the back with a notebook type of thing? Or were you very active and engaged and <laughs> making full use of the time? So it's kind of a weird blend. So, um, yeah, I, like I was certainly there as a bit of a wallflower. And, and frankly, like I, I'm actually very much an introvert by by nature. So mm-hmm. like I, I love the blogging world because I could sit in my computer in my four <laughs> walls. And, um, and like even so even conferences for me, like uh, as an introvert, like I, I enjoy coming here. I do enjoy connections, but... I'm, I'm much more small intimate groups than large groups. Like conferences are actually very draining for me. So like, you know, I get to the end of the day at the conference and I need to go upstairs and just like decompress in my room for an hour mm-hmm. and like get my head sorted back together before I can even relax and go to sleep. So yeah, so going to my first conference in particular being some combination of introverted and shy and just young, young dude. I mean, I was... 24, 25 in, in, in an industry where even then the average age was probably 50. Now we're like mid fifties. Right. Um, so yeah, like I was, you know, wallflower newbie young dude. I looked it, it showed. Um, uh, now the weird thing that came from that is the first conference I went to, I end, you know, you go to a conference, you end up making connections with people like like you. Like mm-hmm. that's sort of what we seek out. So finding people like me was really easy. There were four of us at the conference under the age of forty. <laughs> it was probably well, how old would I have been? Like twenty six or something, uh-huh. twenty five or twenty six at the time. So there were four of us under forty. Uh, so it was not easy. It was not hard to find the other three uh, and and form a connection with them. And so. Uh, y- we made a connection. We sort of said, like, hey, 
this is actually supposed to be an advanced planners conference like future of the profession there literally is no one here who will be in the profession in the future because 99 percent of the people are over the age of 40 and they're only going to be here so long uh like we should make a we should make a like a group for people like us to to try to draw other people out for this mm-hmm. uh and and so literally like my first conference out of the gate we founded a group called next gen mm-hmm. for next generation of financial planners uh, that was a little over 10 years ago. There are now 2,000 members in NextGen. It's a massive, like, growing movement thing across financial planning around the country. And it was just like, yeah, I showed up at a conference and there were three other people like me. So we said, hey, we should hang out. Next thing you know, this thing got created. So, um, and, and just like that itself was very impactful on my career overall. It plugged me into a world of working with next generation financial planners, being a next generation financial planner. Um, I've founded two or three different businesses off of serving that group now of my peers. Like just that, that one moment literally from the first conference has been massively formative on my entire career. And in addition to those businesses now, you're a sought-after speaker making substantial speaking fees, and you speak at 50, 60 oh, conferences yeah, a year? Uh, I, I've done almost 70 for the year for the past two years. I'm trying to – my goal this year is basically to cut it back to 50. Uh, and I keep raising speaking fees, and people keep saying yes. So, like, nice business problem to have. But, like, I'm, I'm, I'm still doing, like, even more than I, more travel than I want to do because uh, it just – it. it it, it works well. There's there's a lot of value to it. There's a lot of value for people that come to conferences. They want content. Uh, it's It's been a, a pretty amazing ride for a couple of years now. Was that an intentional career path that you sat down and planned it out or just kind of happened into it? You know, it definitely happened into it. There, there was no... There was no plan for it, you know. I, I, uh, and and like, frankly, I mean, just as an like as an introvert by nature, like I did not, I do not relish getting up in front of large crowds. I did not feel like, hey, I've got a great idea for a career. Let's be like an introverted person who likes to stand in front of hundreds <laughs> of people at a time. Um, in fact, ironically, like I, I was actually a theater minor in college because I was a set design and lighting design geek because I was terrified of being on stage. Uh, so, like, I truly never, never went up in front of people, even as a theater major, never went up in front of people or a theater minor. Um, you know, for me, like, it basically evolved from a, a, a teaching education perspective. So being more introverted, you know, what did I like doing? I like spending time with textbooks. So I got started in my career and I started accumulating knowledge and education. Basically, I started accumulating degrees and designations. And so... In the span of the first four or five years of my career, while working full time, I basically just left myself continuously enrolled part time in school, uh, on you know doing little classes evenings and weekends. But you do that for years continuously, and all of a sudden, like degrees and designations start popping out. So right. I got my certified financial planner marks. I got a master's degree in financial planning, and added a bunch more thereafter, and you know be, became uh, you know a, a technical expert. So my career began to shape in the direction of. I'm going to be I'm going to be a technical dude. Um, I'm you know I'm going to be the the knowledge dude in in the firm. And this was kind of early mid 2000s, so that was actually a new phenomenon emerging that there was even a career track for just being a good technical expert and not going out there to be a salesperson. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to be a salesperson. I well actually I, I didn't want to be a prospecting person, mm-hmm. meeting strangers and going out and doing that with kind of my whole introvert thing. That was terrifying to right. me. Uh, I technically started doing that in the first job. It was horrible. I lasted barely a year. I was getting nothing done. So um, 
So I was going down this whole road of, all right, if I want to make it in this industry, uh, I've just got to be technically sharp. I've got to be able to contribute something with my knowledge because I sure as heck can't contribute anything by going out there and getting business and getting clients. And so I got technically competent enough that eventually I started getting uh, involved in some local study groups. And at some point in like 2004, maybe, uh, you know, someone said, hey, you know, a lot more of my clients are getting hit by the alternative minimum tax. Does anybody know much about this? And I was like, well, actually, I, I've done some stuff with this. I'm working on a master's degree in taxation. I, was, I, was, I had moved on to it at that point. Um, so like, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about that. So I went home, made a little like PowerPoint presentation, went in, taught my taught my peers. It was basically like my first public speaking event in mm-hmm. front of, I think there were six other people in the room. Yeah, like, maybe I just like my little study group, uh, uh, peer group. Uh, but it went well, and I kind of liked it. I was like, you know, all right. In general, I'm basically terrified to be in front of audiences and people. But you know, when I'm just talking about something that I really, really know well. Like it just—it wasn't big deal. I'm fine. Like as long as I, as long as it's something I've got technical mastery on, not a big deal. I actually, was sort of surprised to find I felt quite comfortable. So I'm like, I'm gonna try this a little bit more. So, so I did it for my local study group, and then like I did it for a local chapter meeting. So then there were thirty or forty people in the room, and it turned out a lot of them thought I did a pretty good job because I clearly knew my stuff technically. I kind of liked explaining things. And, and so it just grew from there. So I did that, and then someone referred me to another chapter, and then I did a few chapters, and then I actually managed to slip into a breakout session on a, on a national conference. You know, they did a call for speakers. I'm like, I got this technical session on AMT, and Lord knows nobody else wanted to talk about something that esoteric. <laughs> so they were like, oh, my gosh, there's one person that actually put their name in for this topic. We should yeah. grab them. Yeah. Uh, the one guy who actually cares about AMT uh, yeah, planning. <laughs> so like, uh, and, and like, and that became sort of my, my first little you know, niche within a niche topic area. I started doing all these sessions on the alternative minimum tax, and and so you know I did like a handful of these, and then the next year, you know, a few people suggest me to some other people, and I did a few more, and then like by the third year, I got a couple more requests, and uh, um, and you know basically all of these were just like yes, if you fly me to your you know, wherever it is, then I'll show up and speak. Um, and so then I, like, I think it was literally not until about the third year of this and I'd probably done 15 or 20 or something over the span of, of two and a half years. And I was like, you know what, if I really like want to make this into something, I should charge money for it. <laughs> and it was terrifying. Right. Like the, the first time I did it, I like my voice was catching. It was like, and, you know, I also charge $100 to be on site for, for the event. I remember, like, the first one I did, it was, a, like I said, it's, it's my travel expenses plus 100 bucks. And, like, they, they didn't even think twice about it, probably not the least of which I wasn't even thinking about, like, the hotel room they have to put me in probably costs more than 100 bucks. Like, they're, they're going to drop three to $500 on a plane ticket just to get me there. So, like, the last 100 bucks is nothing. Right. Uh, uh, but, like, I was so terrified to ask. And... But I did, and so I charged a hundred bucks, and then like people kept asking me, I'm like, I'm gonna ask two fifty and see if they still say yes, and, and they did, and I'm like, it's still like I wasn't even thinking about, it. I'm like, because you haven't even gotten your plane ticket yet, like the small dollars compared to what they were already budgeting just for me to travel to get there, but they kept saying yes, and and so like this entire speaking career that I built has really been nothing more than, um, you know, find something I can learn about and be really expert about share it with my uh, share it with my peers 
I know my peers because I know my audience because they are my peers. So I just, that's all I talk to. I talk to financial advisors because I'm a financial advisor and I know what they're thinking because it's what I'm thinking. Uh, and the more that requests came in, every time a whole bunch of requests came in, I'm like, well, apparently people still like what I'm doing. So I'm going to ask for a little bit more. And, you know, eight, ten years later worth of doing it, now it's like, like holy crap, I actually... Like I can really live off of just being a speaker, right? Uh, and you know, and and take care of my family and do good things. And then there's like even time left on the side to be involved in other businesses as well, and and all this other stuff that's uh, that's grown from it. But like all of it uh, basically tracks back to like showing at a showing up at a conference and being involved. So really, two things: showing up at a conference and being involved, and joining a professional membership association. Because that was how I actually found the study group and the first chapter meeting and the things that kicked off the uh, the speaking on that end and and again like I, I give full credit to my uh, to my firm and the and the and the partners there. Well, I'm, I'm a partner now, but I, I came in as a staff member then. Uh, you know, they sent me to the first conference. They put me in the membership association. Sent me off for the first chapter meeting. Like I, I was just not aware, not cognizant, nothing on my radar screen of like how meaningful it is to be engaged with the community right. of, you know, what you do or what you're involved with, what your career is, what your vocation is. And it like, it's just so powerful. Uh, I was clueless. Like I just, I just had no idea until they said you're doing it and they wrote the check and I just had to show up, which they basically told me I had to show up. And then I started doing things like, Oh, okay. Like this is kind of cool. I'm making connections to people okay I'm like I'm starting to like this and today I would guess I mean you're certainly one of the you are one of the leaders of the industry you are one of the more well connected and influential leaders of the industry and it happened because of exposure education consistency marketing I mean you don't hurt for business opportunities right no no and and uh I mean, like, I, so I forget who it is, whoever had the famous quote of, like, you know, the the overwhelming majority of success is just bothering to show up. Right. Like, yeah, a whole a whole lot of my success, like, it's because I showed up and I kept showing up places. And I showed up places and I met, met people and I talked to people. And if I could be helpful, I was helpful to them. And then at some point down the road, karma came back. And if you show up enough and help enough people, like, there's a lot of karmic balance that seems to build in your favor and like not that i'm like literally spiritual in this direction but but like just there there really is an effect and it's actually well studied in the world of um of of influence and persuasion that you know just like as human beings part of how we're hardwired around you know basically being able to like exist and function in the herd so our 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 brains just are, are kind of hardwired around um these effects of reciprocity. Someone does something good for us. We want to do something in return. Like we, we feel like we have this ingrained debt to them that must be righted in the cosmic world. Um, and, and now I'm like, I'm going to sell Machiavellian to say this, but, but like, so what that means is if you just try to go out there and try to be as helpful to as many people as possible, you end up with this giant number of people that all feel that they owe a debt for you and just want to help you in any way that they can in return. And if you, you know, seed that much goodwill out there, a lot of good things just start coming back to you. And, and I, I like definitely feel like a huge portion of how I've been able to grow and succeed in building uh, businesses and a career is, is, is just driven off of that. The number of people that I have just helped for no reason, then they contacted me and asked a question and I felt like I had something that I could contribute to them. 
and then years later, you know, something good happens. Right. Uh, you know, worked with someone, helped them out early in their career. They had a great thing going, you know, gave them a little nudge along the way. And then like, oh, five years later, they're in charge of an entire national conference team. Right. And they're like, hey, I remember you helped me that time. Well, you know, we need a keynote speaker now. And I've always remembered you. I'm like, okay, so I spent like 10 minutes on the phone once for you helping out a business problem. And you're going to give me a national conference keynote session with a five-year delay lag right. on it. So right. like just th- those sorts of things. Right. And like, yeah, a whole bunch of stuff that I do never comes back and, you know, nothing ever happens, but just you, you, you seed the world with a lot of goodwill and, and goodwill just starts to come back. I've been on exactly the other opposite side of that. And, you know, I've sent you a couple of desperate <laughs> emails when I didn't know who to ask. And I just said, I got to talk to somebody. And yeah. uh, we've had some phone calls at points of desperation and you just took a few minutes and it was incredibly helpful. And it certainly does. Uh, I have a, I owe you a debt of gratitude for that. And you never know where the future goes. And it, it's yeah. true. Yeah, and and again, like I, I mean, I feel like I've, I've maybe I'm self conscious about it. Like I feel like I've made this Machiavellian thing of like you know, go out there and get as many people <laughs> indebted to you as possible, and then you can call in all of your debts and be rich. Uh, like it's, it's nothing like that. I'm I'm not that well coordinated. Um, uh, but like it, it's just recognizing that that reality of of uh, you know, there's both sort of a just it's nice to do good in the world and pay it forward and things like that. But just recognize like there really is sort of a human psychology around it that when, when, when you help people, they want to help you. Uh, and that does, that can do some very good things for you in the long run. When did you start writing and publishing your writing at what stage in your career? Um, so it was a little bit, it was a little bit later than all of the, um, the conference and speaking stuff went underway. So I, I showed up at my first conference and speaking gig uh, uh, about four years into my career. I probably started doing a little bit of writing about five to six years into my career. So I'll admit, like, I always had a little bit of a writing bent. I, you know, I, I graduated from uh, college 15 years ago, 2000. So, like, right, right at the market peak uh, and, and the high end of the tech bubble. And, and sort of, you know, upward rise of, of the internet. And so I'd gotten very active on, like, message forums and, and writing in forums and just engaging there. And, you know, lucky me, I two parents who were computer scientists, so I learned to type very young. Like, you know, Mavis Pekin teaches typing, right. like my ten-finger typing uh, skill. So I type very, very quickly, which, which makes it easier to do a lot of writing. So, like, I... I suppose in retrospect, like I was already exercising a little bit of my writing skill, learning it as a skill, uh, just on things like message forums, you know, getting involved, like, you know, there was a message forum back then called financialplanning.com. The site's actually still there. It's a magazine, but uh, the message forums aren't as active as they used to be. But, you know, so I start showing up there and like answering people's questions and just, you know, typing and interacting with people, but, you know, doing it in reasonable prose and typing and writing style. And, uh, uh, the first article I ever did was actually an article called The Other Side of Financial Planning. And it was a discussion of how I was kind of going down this new career track that not very many people were doing at the time, where I wanted to basically be a technical geek working in a firm and not just going out there and getting clients, which right. was sort of the industry standard of what everybody right. did. Uh, and so the editor of one of the trade publications... Uh, heard about my story through the association, found me online through my writing in the message forums, saw that like I actually 
could write and complete sentences with proper punctuation and grammar and such, right. and got in touch with me and said, like, it's, I've heard you have an interesting story. Uh, it looks like you can actually write. Would you interested in basically be writing an article just about your, your story, your experience, the path you've been on? Uh, what you've done and I was like oh cool like a magazine wants me to write an article about like the things I've been doing okay cool uh, we'll try it out and so and so that was that became the first article that I wrote and and I liked it like it was it was it was neat I sort of enjoyed writing I feel like I had something to share I got you know a couple of emails in response and people are like that was a neat story I was like all right this is kind of cool you write something you get it out there and people respond to you and like I kind of like this engagement uh, and and so it just started building from there. So then you know I now had a relationship with an editor. So I would contact from time like, hey, I'm working on something about this. Uh, you know, would you be interested in an article on it? And uh, uh, you know, because I was sort of blending this with my presentation, so I was doing lots of like technical geeky style things. Not a lot of other people actually like to do fairly technical writing. So the editor virtually always said yes. So I suddenly had this like conduit to publish. So I started publishing there. I started sending things to a couple of other places. Uh, and after about three or four years of that, I was actually getting so into writing that I was getting frustrated because now suddenly I felt like I had so much to say and so many things to say and share. Um, I kept smacking into uh, column length limitations in trade publications. You know, the standard columns would be like 1,500 words. Even like a journal article would be 5,000 words. And like if I did some really in-depth research thing, I'm like... It takes me longer than that to write it. I want the room to write it. Right. Uh, uh, and so I got so frustrated with with content length limits of basically physical print magazines because that's still how most of this was distributed then. Uh, I decided I would just make my own electronic newsletter. And then if I, you know, wanted to write, tw- you know, some insane like 20-page treatise on something, I could write it. And if there were a couple other human beings out there who liked some insane 20-page treatise, they could pay <laughs> me a couple bucks for it. And, uh, and that would be cool. And, and so I launched a newsletter service that um, uh, that that's that I'm still running seven years later in in early 2008. Where I basically said, hey, if you want like if you're you know like one of the one or two percent of advisors that just really likes actual deep technical stuff, like you're tired of the fluff and you want something deep, I'm your guy. I'm actually going to write that. Uh, and a couple of people start showing up, and they actually wanted me to they wanted to pay me to write it. So like I started getting subscribers. And and that and that you know that began this sort of writing business. Now the the way that end evolved. So I started writing this newsletter on basically you know, really dense technical topics. They were eligible for continuing education credits for financial planners. Now our our CFP board uh, organization that oversees the continuing education only allows you to get continuing education credit for like actual technical topics. So if you want to write about the business of practice planning, that's off limits. You have to actually write about like the subject matter expertise areas, taxes, retirement, insurance, estate mm-hmm. planning, things like that. But I, I sort of felt like I had a couple things to say from time to time about the, the business of financial planning as well as I was getting more immersed in that side of things. So I decided like, hey, I'm I'm going to make a blog and try this out. Like I've heard of blogs. Other people do blogs. Like our industry had no blogs, like, like nothing. Right. Uh, it's like, I, I'm, I'm going to try, I'm going to try this out. Uh, and so I sort of had this vision in my head, that, like the, the newsletter would be the technical comp- topics. And then I would use the blog to sort of voice my own like practice management industry comments of just stuff that I wanted to put out there. Right. Cause that's what you do on a blog. You just sort of like right. say things that are on your mind. So right. hey, let's try this out. Uh, 
So I launched that sort of in tandem with the newsletter in 2008. And uh, so the newsletter got some really good early traction. I, I was lucky in part I got uh, some really nice support from uh, a guy who'd actually been writing newsletter business in the industry for many, many years named Bob Virus writes a very well-known practice management newsletter in the industry. Uh, and, you know, he was really supportive of telling me, like, you should go do this. And he said, you know what, if you if you do it, I'll, I'll send a thing out to my, you know, I've seen your writing. I know you do good stuff for advisors who want it. I will send something out to my subscribers, my mailing list that just says, hey, folks, if you like this, you should check it out. Uh, and so he did. I got, like, a really nice initial subscriber bump, basically, at launch from his support. So... You know, so that got started. So the newsletter was off to a great start. And then I was doing the blogging thing on the side. And the blogging was basically going nowhere. Like, I, I wasn't getting comments. I didn't really feel like I was getting any, any interaction and feedback. So I'm like, I should, I should install Google Analytics and, like, figure out what's going on. So I went and installed Google Analytics. And now I had, like, definitive proof that basically no one was coming to read my, <laughs> no one was coming to read my blog. So, like, it wasn't just that it felt like I was releasing content to an echo chamber. I, I pretty much had proof that, like, no, no one was coming to read my blog. Um, and so I actually shut it down. Like I let it go completely after you know six to nine months, and, and basically stopped posting. I would do like one article every three months because something struck me and I wanted to rant. But I basically stopped, uh, and I stopped for almost two years until uh, like the middle of 2010. And watching what, frankly, was not new at all, but like the rise of social media. So really, like really watching. So at that point, LinkedIn was gaining momentum. Facebook was really gaining momentum. This Twitter thing had been around for a year or two and was starting to happen more. And uh, so, you know, a, another friend of the industry, another person I met through conferences and uh, associations and all the rest uh, named Bill Winterberg. So he does uh, technology consulting for advisors in the industry said, you know, Mike, you, you got you got to look at this. Twitter thing, like I think you'd really like it. You'd really be into it. So I'm like, all right, what the hell? I'll try out. I'll try out Twitter. Um, so I so I joined Twitter and I just started watching a little of what's going on on Twitter and was like, oh, I kind of see like people do a little chit chat and discussion, but then also just like they read things and they share them out there. And uh, uh, and I had one of those like eureka moments, light bulb goes off above head um, sorts of things. I was like, okay, wait, I get it now you create the content on your site and then you can share and distribute it out through social media and other people will share it on social media and then it gets shared and gets out there. So like my mystery had always been, right, I know how to create content. Like I've been writing and speaking and doing this stuff for a while now and getting practiced at it. Uh, but I have, no, I have no idea how you how you get it out there. And so watching social media taking off, it's like, oh, I get it. You write it, you share it on social media, but other people share it on social media, and then it begins to grow. And and so I kind of re-immersed back to the blog and did that. And, like, damn, it just started working. And, like, now the Google Analytics said actually people are showing up, and every month more people show up than the people in the prior month. And and, uh, uh, and, and off it went. And so now four or five years later of doing that, it's, uh, I like, basically, I guess, four and a half years or so since I sort of reinvested into that launch. Uh, you know, all of a sudden now I have, like, I guess is I like basically the leading blog site around the industry. You know, I've, I've kind of come into my own little niche here and, and just the, like the amount of business opportunities and things that have spawned off of that are, are like just blow me away. Uh, of just all the opportunities and things that come in by just, you know, making a presence for yourself and getting it out there and letting people find their way to you. How much time do you spend reading every week 
and in the past how much and that can be technical reading or just personal reading oh man um like i spend a good amount of time reading every week uh, many many hours worth between uh just it just industry and trade publications and like really keeping up on the beat of everything that's happening in in you know in our in our world um you know some around a book reading as well i've actually been trying to you know, pair my articles, websites, blogs, trade publication reading down a tiny bit and dial up the, just the book reading uh, uh, a little bit more because, you know, if you're going to search the web for content, you pretty much never reach the bottom of that web. Absolutely. So, you know, that, that, uh, uh, so that becomes tough. But, like, I mean, hours, hours a week. Uh, in fact, like, I got to the point where I realized I spent so many hours every week reading all these articles and stuff and, you know, there's a bunch of junky stuff and then every now and then it's like wow this hard article had a great nugget or a great idea or a great mm-hmm. insight uh that one of the things i ended up launching on the blog was like oh, i'm just gonna make the summary of like the, the you know half dozen or a dozen best articles i read that week write a little summary of them and send them out to my readers and that's actually become one of my most popular anchor uh posts to the blog every friday i post weekend reading for financial planners here's the like dozen best articles about uh our world of financial planning that i read this week um and just leveraging, like, hey, all right, I do all this reading already. Like, right. I can be an effective filter for other people who have even less time than I do Absolutely. Uh, uh, to read. But, yeah, like, if you're not in a continuous learning mode, like, you know, change passes you by pretty quickly. So I've led you into a trap here. And uh, have you ever heard Brian Tracy's little speech on the 1,000% formula of increase your in- increasing your income by 1,000% over 10 years? I don't think I have. So in summary, what he says is that you can increase your income by 1,000% every 10 years by increasing your effectiveness and skill uh, by one-tenth of 1% each day. So mm-hmm. you make a tiny incremental improvement each day, and it compounds over the course of the 10 yep. years to be about 1,000%. And because you're 10 times more effective, then now you're going to have an in- increase in your income of probably around, t- around 10 times. And he gives a number of steps to it that were super helpful to me. It changed my life when I heard it as a teenager. Step one was reading every day, 30 to 60 minutes. You read about 50 books a year. You read 500 books in your field over 10 years. You're a world-class expert. Yes. Step two was going to at least four conferences a year. By going to conferences, you become a world-class expert because you hear what's going on at those conferences. Yep. Um, step three, and I, he had other steps. I've added to that writing and disseminating information, learning to speak and speaking at conferences, and just basically building your knowledge and your impact impact and over time that that happens so i've tried to do it intentionally although you know with fits yeah. and starts but i'm curious would you guess if you look back 10 or so years ago would you guess that your income is um a higher multiple than what it was 10 or so years ago? actually like if i really try to project back and do the math of about where i was uh uh that that 10x multiple is actually like probably really close to dead on of uh, of how much like income and businesses has grown for me and and like that's particularly stunning for me like again my my career track of what had taken me up to that point almost exactly 10 years ago was I basically had done a very purposeful effort of making sure that I was never actually in a position where I had to prospect find business or sell anything right because I was terrified of prospecting <laughs> you and me both <laughs> um and so now like I mean when I look at it, it was sort of like wearing my business hat a huge portion of what I do to make income is basically come down to uh, creating businesses where I see need in our industry, which I see a lot of because, as you said, like I read a huge amount of stuff and I go to a zillion conferences, so I see need and opportunity all over the place. Uh, and then using my platform to help drive 
business to those businesses of just people that read my stuff because it's helpful, I hope. And, you know, hey, if you think this is helpful, I have some other businesses that can help you solve other problems. And I just hope you'll check them out. And, you know, you know, large numbers become amazing things, right? Like I need, you know, right. one, you know, one hundredth of one percent of all the people who come to my site to do business with me every month. And, you know, I'm making more money than I ever dreamed of. So, uh, yeah. So, like, I, I, I would definitely, like, fully validate that. Um, and particularly, like, you know, sort of those those underpinnings of. Uh, reading actively, going out to conferences. I'd probably blend that a little bit to say, going out to conferences and or being involved in uh, you know a membership association like whatever the group is for your industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, it was very much a blend of both right. that that created some of the meaningful impact. Uh, but but yeah, like that's 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 what drives to be it's a, drives to craft expertise in in your industry in your space in your niche and whatever it is that you do um, and. You know, because so few people do that, uh, you know, it's kind of amazing, sort of the like the rarefied air that you can move up to, like just by persistently trying to read and take in information and then share it back out to people. And it feels so slow in the beginning, but over time, it gains momentum and it gains momentum. And my guess is, I would we'll see, we'll check back in ten years, Mm -hmm. but there's no reason why it can't increase by another ten x in the next ten years. Yeah, I like I was lucky. I was very lucky coming into it that, you know, I got to do a lot of that building process uh, from a, from a stable base, which mm-hmm. was having an ongoing job in an advisory firm. So, I mean, I guess the blend, having a stable base, being a little bit of a workaholic. So, you know, I, I, I put in my time at the firm. I put in more than my time at the firm. I was, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I was the first one in the last one to leave most days. And then I went home and read and studied and analyzed and educated myself. Um, got my degrees and designations and such. Uh, but what that meant, like the the fact that I was doing my work and my time on top of that meant when the time came for things like going to my firm and saying, hey, I, I, you know, I got an invitation for this speaking engagement. You know, we were doing financial planning for consumers. I was going to speak in an industry events. So, like, no one was under any illusions that I was going to go to this event and, like, bring clients home. Mm-hmm. This was not business development for the firm. Like, the firm was not making money off the fact that I was going to go vanish and go to a speaking engagement. They're like, you know what? You you work your ass off around here. We can't right. even make you take all your vacation days. It probably would be healthy for you if you would just not come into the office for a day or two. So, go for it. Knock yourself out. So... Uh, so the firm was very supportive of me letting me go out and starting to do my speaking and my other stuff because I was kind of I was I was putting in my time I was putting in my dues with the firm as well so mm-hmm. I created the opportunity for myself to have the flexibility and then the flexibility you know gave me what at the end of the day was like I mean it was a really slow build I, I it was probably two years before I very charged anything and even when I started charging things like. I was charging 100 bucks and 250 bucks for what was basically a day and a half of travel. Like you're not going to build a giant career off of $100 a day and 8 hours of travel. Um, uh, but but having that base of both job and and frankly salary uh, and doing all of this in addition to it for a period of time uh, you know, like gave me the base that I could ease into this slowly and take the time that it takes to really build an expertise, a niche, a presence, all the kind of all those words that right. we that we throw around, which I can vouch like really actually have impact after a while. Right, but right. but it's it, it like it it is. It's a slow building process. It takes a while to uh, 
to get there. And I was fortunate that I, I had a way to kind of bridge that gap from when you're trying to get started from scratch, from nothing until you get to that point where it's at least like a livable, a livable wage, a livable right. dollar amount for me. And I guess basically if I look back at that, uh, uh, you know, like the livable gap for me was three and a half years or so from when I first, like I did the, the first conference speaking engagement, which was free, but like the first conference speaking engagement, the first article until I was like, you know, I've, I've got this newsletter service and I've got this speaking thing. And if I actually mix all that together, like I could live off of this money. Right. I could, like, I don't even have to do the full-time job anymore. I could go change things. Uh, and, and I did. And that, and that was what kind of started down the next freeing path. But like it was three and a half years and, and actually having launched several different niche businesses in our industry now, I've been fascinated by this phenomenon uh, that almost all of them find an inflection point in the third year. Wow. Like just the first year you work your ass off. Uh, we're not on television, right? I can say ass. You, 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 work, <laughs> you work your ass off for the first year for basically like like nothing like nothing's coming in your disability like you're making connections you're meeting people they don't know who the hell you are what you do why they would trust you anything um then you do it the second year so like you know year one you get like this tiny handful of clients or engagements or events or you know serve people who buy your service whatever it is that you're offering and then year two basically feels not very different from year one like you're continuing to grind a slightly smaller handful of people come in because now you get a few people who buy your service and a few people who kind of kicked your tire last year but didn't really do anything like well you're still around it's been another year i guess maybe you're legit now all right well like we'll try we'll try something um and then all of a sudden year three like this transition moment is like year one they just get to know you Year two, they begin to like you. Year three, they actually trust you. And when you get through no like and trust and the trust part picks up, all of a sudden, like, business just, just starts flowing in. And so it'd be like, you know, year one, you're doing all this grinding. Year two, you're doing all this grinding and getting maybe a little bit of spillover effect from year one. And then suddenly year three, it's like all these people who've been talking to for two years show up. A whole bunch of new people you see have actually heard of you and are like, oh, yeah, you're legit. I've heard of you. You've been around for a couple of years, and they want to do business with you very quickly. And then all of those people in that pipeline start referring you because now, like, you're the the guy or the girl. You're the go-to person. You've been doing this for years. People know who you are. Uh, And they start referring business in, and and it just starts exponentially – uh, jumping and so you know, you know like people think of building businesses as like you know my growth patterns can be one two three four like I keep building one layer every year and and I find like just one niche business after another um, they almost all follow what's basically a one two five ten pattern interesting so you know year one you just do at, you know X year two you basically just do two X much of which is last year's X plus just a little bit that you add on but then suddenly in year three you don't just go one two three you go like one two five right and then all of a sudden the five doubles to ten because right. now the thing's getting momentum and and then now it's just a question of how big is this thing going to start growing and 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 where is it going to land and can you execute on that well it's fascinating because when I started as a financial advisor it was exactly that I did not have fun until my third year and then after my third year it was like something changed and all of a sudden it was people actually said oh Joshua's going to do this for a while he might actually know what he's talking about and the fourth year was a radically different experience than the second year and now with new business with radical personal finance I'm grinding it out for year one but I can 
we'll see. I'll, I'll report back. And, and I think it just, I mean, having been through so many of these now, like it just, even having been through them and knowing what the pattern is, like it still feels kind of despairing sometimes in year one for how slow it's growing. And it still feels despairing in year two for like, God, I've been working like a year and a half. You know, you're halfway through your through like a year or two of, of, of trying to do something that's like a year and a half like I've been working really hard a really <laughs> long time and I really don't feel like there's a lot of momentum yet like this right. kind of sucks right uh, like it's really a grind just like mentally to right. get yourself into year three right but you get there and stuff starts showing up and and now like having a bunch of these that I've been doing even more years like and that, and that, like the exponential growth rate doesn't stop after year four either. Like I can say, right. having been on the other end of a bunch of these, like, and the damn thing just keeps going. It's and, awesome. And the you know, and you get to your like Brian Tracy thousand percent numbers. Right. Just, like, it's it's amazing. Uh, you know, all the all those basically it's compounding effects, right? right. So like right. you know, finance world we love to talk about compound interest, but like the the compounding effects happen in in most businesses of that nature. I and find. the thing I, I think we should teach people. So we always use the example to teach compound interest of the magic penny, and that's nice. You do it for thirty one days. The double penny is ten million bucks. Yeah. It's a massive number. But what I started teaching clients, I said, go back and look when you're five days in and when you're 10 days in. And this magic penny, you have a grand total of 72 cents. Yeah. And I said, most people, they quit or they spend the money or they quit or they spend the money. And the point is, go back and look at how slow it is for the first 15, 20, 25 days. It's in those last five days that it, in, the, in that example where it makes up the difference. And that's what you're expressing. Yeah, I, li- I like that. That's actually uh, like a really good analogy of a way to frame it up. Like it, it's so true. I mean, the, the, the challenge of trying to sort of comp- compound your growth, getting something started for yourself. I mean, whatever it is, it, it's, it's your career trajectory. It's building a business. It's building some brand platform, writing, blogging, speaking, podcasts, like what, whatever it is, whatever your endeavor is. Uh, it's so true that if I'm a math geek, so like I always have to think of it in math terms, but like when you start compounding growth rates on a really small number, right. the growth of a really small number is still a really small number. Yeah. And it takes a while before the compounding gets to the point where it starts adding up to material dollars, but the back end of compounding growth is just extraordinary growth numbers that come on extraordinary growth numbers. Like, holy crap, how did all this, like, where did all this come from? How did, how did all this happen? And, and like, truly, I mean, uh, uh, you know, there's the old saying of, like, what, what got you here won't get you there, which, uh, or won't, won't move you forward from here, uh, which I've, I've certainly, like, found, lived, experienced, uh, like truly, and I, mean, I really don't mean this in some like self-aggrandizing manner at all. But like the my, my greatest challenge right now that I've really been struggling with over the past year, and I'm continuing to struggle with this year. Uh, now my problem is that uh, the growth has created so much opportunity. It's very difficult to choose amongst the opportunities, and like it just it leads me to struggle with all sorts of decisions that I never thought about before. Of of like. I have to care more about how I spend my time because otherwise, like, there are literally a never-ending stream of emails of people who contact me, of people who want help, and, like, it feels bad in many ways. Like, I have to carve up, like, who I'm going to help and who I'm not, but, like, I can just only help so many people. And, and, uh, you know, it's led me in the direction now of, like, trying to create more in different businesses because I'm so at a personal capacity constraint 
that I need to create things where I can shepherd people to a place where they can get the right. help because I can't do the help. Right. And I'm even already hitting the next level of it, which is, and I can only manage so many businesses right. doing this. So I need business partners. I need other people that can drive these businesses so that I can make sure people get to a place where they get helped and then basically get the hell out of the way. And, and like having been a very hands-on person around all of the work that I've done for years, uh, you know, to accept over the past year that in virtually everything that we do for all of our different clients and businesses now, um, I am the bottleneck in all processes. I, I am the one that... <laughs> and the problem is you know that and you know you're supposed to get yourself out and it's still challenging. It is so challenging. So like I'm, I'm, you know, I'm learning the skill of getting the hell out of my own way now. Uh, but like particularly I haven't been someone that's, that was so hands-on everything. Right. I mean, I'm a very much a like roll up my sleeves and dive into my things. That's how I build all these... All these uh, uh, businesses and, and kind of this platform for myself that, you know, just being ready to get out of my own way when it used to like, I mean, literally, like I, so I go back years ago, like I made a lot of the early point steps in my career because I was the guy that got this stuff done whenever, when other people would let things fall through the cracks. I was the get stuff done guy. And now I'm the I now I'm the one that hinders the get stuff done guys. Right, so right. like just even having that whole realization like, oh, now I understand why a lot of our partners would dump the things on me the way that they did and why all these problems would crop up the way that they did. Now I'm on the other side of that, uh, uh, that, that like productivity line of what it's like building businesses. I'm like, okay, I'm understanding now why things flow down the way that they do. Cause when, when businesses really start gaining momentum for growth, like just the, the sheer like capacity limits you hit on your own personal bandwidth and what you can do, like become very, very noticeable very quickly. So are you addressing that? Are you changing your learning and shifting from focusing on technical financial planning to learning some new management skills or how are you addressing that problem? Yeah. So, so it's shifting a few ways. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be a little bit more selective, uh, about my time and, and, you know, I mean, I've always viewed it this way to some extent, like really starting to view my time as a resource that is a precious thing to allocate that I really have to sometimes make hard decisions about uh, allocating. Uh, it's certainly been a driver of, you know, reinvesting into my businesses as businesses, into people. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I've been hiring much more of a support and an infrastructure around myself of, you know, I started with a virtual assistant, you know, I, I started like... 10 hours a month or something uh, uh, a few years ago and then I started figuring out how to delegate stuff to her and I was like alright well this is kind of working like, I'm going to try you like 5 hours a week and like I was just I was so used to being hands on everything like what the heck would I give someone else to do for 5 hours a week I do everything myself <laughs> um, uh, you know it's got to be right done my way to be done right, right. And, and and frankly I think the breakthrough even for me on that end is you start viewing time as this precious resource and you just start converting like the value of your time into some dollar amounts. Like if I want to grow myself in my business and do like a Brian Tracy thousand percent thing, you know, if they, if that's your goal, you know, so the rough math divide what you make in a year by 2000, mm -hmm. that's roughly your hourly weight rate of what you do for the year. So, you know, 40 hours a week, 50 weeks a year of working, you're at about 2000 hours. So you take what you make for the year divided by 2000, you've got some estimate around your rate. So, I went through a process of doing that about a year and a half ago and then basically said, okay, look, anything, I, you know, I can hire people for a lower number than this because mm -hmm. my time, you know, value of my time was elevating as, as the business was going up. So hire someone at a lower rate. Anything I can find that that person can do, I instantly make more money in my business by letting it go and letting the other person do it so that I can spend my time on higher value tasks. 
and and kind of the secondary breakthrough that came through to me mentally is you know what as 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 you grow your career and your time and your business enough you get to the point where like you know what even if they don't do it as well as you i'm like i'm making air quotes right. as though okay i made when i said not doing as well for those of you who are listening i'm making air quotes right now <laughs> um so like for those of you who don't do as well as you can because you know only you can do everything that you need done perfectly right uh you know even if they someone else has to do it and it takes them twice as long there's actually enough gap in how you value your time um that's okay and and that was sort of the, the like the let go moment for me was I had this realization like you know what if I give this protest to someone else and it takes them twice as long to do it as it as it would have taken me to just you know do it myself I'm actually still more successful with that and you know what eventually they do enough times that they learn how to do it right, right. like we you know, we we I think as certainly me like I get stuck in like the first time they do this they're not going to be nearly as good as me so I should just do it it's like you know what it takes them twice as long still more successful for me and eventually they'll be efficient at it as well like I learned there was a point where I didn't know what I was doing and I figured it out and got better so they will too uh and and so as that's grown like that that's really been so I've taken a lot of focus around that over the past year or two of you know hire people I I pay them well like I don't don't, I I try to make sure that that the people that are supporting me are paid well, but still recognize like if I'm going to keep growing the way that I want to be growing, I need to set a certain price point of my time and anything where I can pay someone less than that to support me, I need to let go of that and, and send it down to them. So I've been doing a lot of that to try to, to try to build out my time and have, you know, hired a number of, uh, uh, outsourcing partners and virtual assistant folk for various pieces of what I do. So some, some web design, some editing work, some, uh, basically like like a personal assistant style person. Mm-hmm. Um, so a piece of it has been that just letting go of things and, and sort of do the whole, you know, make sure you're spending as much time possible on your highest, best uses, not all of which are dollars. So like that might be getting paid for writing or speaking something, or that might be reading for which I don't literally get paid, but that's what fuels the whole engine, right. the the knowledge, the continuous learning and, and let go as much as possible. So like that, that's been the starting point. That's been helping a little, I'm finding I'm still like, business and opportunities and things are growing faster than that and and so you know now i'm even going through the second round of you know i've got some businesses and things that i do that i feel very personally attached to because i've helped to build them but you know i can only build and be involved in so many things maybe some of these things i just have to let go of entire change entire business lines and 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 recognize you know maybe this is something my partner can just run with on on their own or maybe this is a service that i do that you know, is good dollars for what it what it is, but I can't get to the next level by continuing to do it because it's just not going to grow or scale or build in the way that the other things are. And and again, I I've, I found like I can kind of convert this to a all right. What's really the value of my time by continuing to do this? If that number isn't good, then either I need to figure out how can I make the value higher, how can I you know delegate it or shift it to someone else. And if I can't figure out how to do either of those two things, maybe it's something that I just need to let go. Right. And I suck at letting go, so <laughs> that will, this will be my challenge over the next uh, six months: is, is is figuring out how to how to let go of a thing or two. You and me both. I'd like to wrap up by talking for a couple of minutes about financial advisor marketing. In my years as a financial advisor, I've often heard experienced, successful financial advisors say marketing doesn't work; only prospecting works, and 
I'm interested in your take on that comment, and I'm interested in trends that you see in the industry as comparing marketing and prospecting. Oh, man, marketing doesn't work, only prospecting works. So, um, and just as a corollary to that, because I'm, I'm going to bash in a moment, so I need to set it up as a, as a framing point. Uh, so the other version of that that we hear is like, marketing doesn't work, I just get all my business from referrals. Mm-hmm. Sort of the, the you know, similar version of it. Uh, so, like, uh, you know, and... I, you know, financial advisor in my world. I love financial advisors. I love my peers. <laughs> but, dot, dot, dot. Uh, we suck at marketing. We are terrible marketers. I, I know an extraordinary number of very, very successful financial advisors. Uh, and, like, I'm sorry, but they they succeeded despite themselves. Not because of themselves and their great ability to like build businesses and market and the rest. They succeeded by like an unbelievable amount of perseverance and grit and chutzpah and all that stuff that they basically you know drove through the sheer failings that they were doing along the way and managed to attract enough people that they got to a viable business. Their you know what should have been a three year building cycle was a seven year building cycle, but hey, they got to it and it's great on the back end and the you know the compounding still works later even if you compound more slowly early on. It's like there's just an extraordinary number of people to me that like they 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 got there in in spite of themselves in marketing, not not because marketing does or does not work. And and I find like we I think certainly in our advisory world, we like we put ourselves in this trap. Marketing work marketing doesn't work, therefore I won't spend anything on marketing. And at the end of the year when I don't get any clients off of the almost nothing I spent on marketing, it's definitive proof that marketing doesn't work. Mm-hmm. So like there you know, there there's this you know, we do all these studies in the industry of like where do advisors get clients and you know pick your survey but you know like eighty percent of advisors drive the you know the majority of their new business off of getting referrals. I'm like, okay, but if you also look at the industry and benchmarking studies, the average advisor spends less than two percent of their revenues on marketing. So if you basically and, and if you drill down to that, most of that revenue is like I did an appreciation event for my clients, which mm-hmm. is basically another opportunity to get referrals off them. So like if the only money you ever spend on marketing is a combination of nothing or events specifically designed just to drive referrals, and then you say the dominating portion of all new business comes off of referrals, it may actually simply be because you've been so horrifically bad at ever executing any form of marketing. Like Referrals is not a best practice because marketing doesn't work. Referrals is all you have left when you do no marketing. Right. Right? Like, And, and I, think, I think that's very much the trap that we've gotten into, certainly for the huge majority of our industry uh you know referrals are the referrals are the result of what happens when you don't have a marketing process not proof that marketing is doesn't work for our industry now that being said marketing is hard marketing takes sustained effort marketing takes a targeted focus we're we're really not execute we're we're not well educated and trained about how to execute marketing effectively in the first place I think that actually the biggest challenge for advisors, not with saying how much I just like ranted about the fact that we don't spend anything on marketing and do anything on marketing. Frankly, most advisors, if they did start spending money on marketing, it wouldn't work. And the reason it wouldn't work is so many advisors at the end of the day are basically generalists. I do anything for everyone who comes in my door who can afford to pay my fees mm-hmm. or are willing to pay my fees. Like you, you can't, you can't market that like what are you going to do hey if you can fog mirrors and have money i can work with you like nobody resonates with that marketing right right <laughs> like oh i fog a mirror and have money i should work with this guy that'd be brilliant <laughs> he has years of experience uh 
So, like, until advisors get more targeted in who they try to serve, I don't know that they can necessarily be effective in marketing anyways. Because when you're a generalist, basically you're going to compete against other generalists. Marketing, which basically means you're going to compete with either large national brands that actually can spend, you know, extraordinary seven, eight, nine-figure dollar amounts on marketing, you know, national insurance companies, wirehouses, major financial services firms. And you're going to compete against... Uh, basically consumer publications who say, oh, and if you don't want one of those large national brands, we'll show you how to do it yourself. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Money Magazine and Kipler Magazine and Yahoo Finance and CNN and all that. So be- between massive publications that try to give people information about how to do it themselves and massive financial services companies that do general broad-based marketing, yeah, like you basically have no chance to stand out as an official advisor doing marketing by just right. trying to be a generalist and spending money on marketing. Right. So... So then you get back to what really is a crossroads of two choices. Either you can just not do marketing and try to succeed by the sheer perseverance of finding how many hands you can shake and prospecting until you get enough clients, which frankly is what most people have done historically. Or you acknowledge that if you really want to be successful, you actually have to have some kind of specialization, some kind of niche, some sort of target market where you can actually try to communicate with a group in a much more targeted manner, reach them effectively and actually have a differentiated message. And and I think that's where we're starting to see certainly the advisory world going forward now. It's still slow, but I think there's this growing recognition of like being a general being an undifferentiated generalist is really becoming a problem. You got to find some way to specialize niche be different. And uh and frankly, the problem I see for a lot of people even in trying to do that transition going back all the way to what we were talking about earlier if you're going to go down that road, we're right back into the three years it takes to be known, liked, and trusted, and that's a really long time. And especially if you get like you know the the you know the quick hits off of not that they're that quick, but like the quick hits off of prospecting. Mm-hmm. So you're like, hey, I can do all this niche thing and feel like I'm going nowhere for three years, or I can go work my ass off and prospect, but at least I found a client or two. You know, like the we we get addicted to the faster feedback of what still is rather ineffective prospecting, but we get right. addicted to the feedback of the prospecting that we don't want to do the slow build, even though the slow build is the one that has the big the big payoff in the back end. So you know, people that I see build their business off prospecting, it's a one, two, three, four growth rate. When I see people that build it off niches and specialization, it's a one, two, five, ten growth rate. Um and so it like it doesn't feel like it's doing any better to do the niche thing. In fact, frankly, it might even be slightly slower on the front end. The payoff's much bigger on the back end, but it, it's hard to remove ourselves from the addiction of like, I just feel like I've got control. If I go out there, beat the streets, I know I'm doing some activity, I'm prospecting, and then like I got a client, so here's proof that it worked. Right, right. Do you see in here in 2015, what do you see as some effective ideas that people can implement to how to just get started with a marketing plan for themselves or their firm? I, I mean, to me, like for advisors or I think like really anybody who wants to do anything in, in uh, you know, in, in, in building a, a business, particularly like a service business, a personal mm-hmm. brand style business for yourself, like you got to decide who you're going to work with and who you're not going to work right. with. Like that's, you know, you're until there's a strategy about who you want to reach, your marketing dollars, efforts, time, all the rest of that just aren't, aren't going to do anything. Because if you don't know who you're going to reach, you're not going to do something that moves you in the direction of reaching them. So you're, uh, so you're not making progress. So to me, it, it it all starts. It really starts with that end, which means, and and most advisors don't want to do that and don't want to go there. Uh, and again, like this is even really specific to advisors. I see this across 
clients we have in their own small businesses, um, uh, you know, it, it's it's a mentality shift around just recognizing that while it feels good to be able to do business with absolutely anybody you meet, you know, I'm a generalist, I can work with anyone, therefore I can do business with anyone that I meet, the people you meet don't really want to do business with you. Right. Because it doesn't feel like you're someone who specializes in solving their problems and issues. And when you take a narrower focus, yes, strictly speaking, you will turn away a lot of people who don't fit your niche, but you will be able to do business and be much more likely to do business with everybody you find that does hit your niche. And so, like, to put it in sort of our industry terms, so, like, you can go out there and meet uh, uh, 10 people and have a 10% close rate and get one client – or you can go out there with a focused niche where you can only work with 20% of the people, but you close them all. And so you only meet two people, but you close them both. And so it feels scary because you went from 10 prospects to two. Right. But you went from one client to two. Right. So you're going to have fewer prospects, but you actually double your growth rate. And and it's, it's, that, it's that phenomenon of... You know, the virtue of the niche is that, uh, and the focus and the specialization and really having a target market is yes, you will drastically reduce the number of prospects that you have, but you will drastically increase the number of clients that you have because, the, you know, in essence, like if you want to do the math to it, your close rates go up dramatically more than your prospecting rate goes down and you, and you end out ahead. And like I can speak to it having done a whole bunch of niche businesses over the years, like it's, it's really true. You, you're, you know, you close people so much more when they feel like you're special to them and, and, and unique to them and their needs and their issues. And you get way more business. And frankly, you get way more business for less work because you don't have to spend as much time on the nine prospects that don't, right. that don't do business <laughs> with you. Like I, you know, I, 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 I spend a whole lot of time on people who do business with me and remarkably little time on people who don't. Right. Because like if you're not into my thing, by the time you read my blog and my website and all the other stuff that I do, you know. Like I view those as screening tools, self pruning. If you yeah, self yeah, like you, you not know, to be a client. You know, I'm I'm going to make my stuff as dense as possible for you because if you don't like that, you won't like me. But if right. you like keep reading that and you like that, <laughs> then you're going to love the rest of the stuff that I provide. Right. Uh, and and I, I like I really view much of my website and my, my tools like they're not magnets to bring people in per se. I uh, they're they're like pruning opportunities to 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 screen people out. So the only people who really come all the way through the pipeline are people who really feel a connection to me and want to do business with me. In which case, I would love to do business with them in any way that I can. Are advisors waking up to this change? I'm not sure that they are. I I think advisors are waking up to the fact that the generalist thing. I can work you know work with anyone and do anything. So I got to cast my net as wide as possible. I think they're waking up to the fact that that's a problem. They're seeing more people. They're not necessarily getting more business. They, I know lots and lots of advisors. They'll say, like, I'm, I work so much harder than I used to even to try to get clients, find clients, prospect, find a way to prospect for them. You know, no more do not call lists. Everybody's more closed off. Like, the, right. all, all the challenges, prospecting's clearly gotten harder than it used to be, and getting results from it is harder than it used to be. So I think there's this growing recognition that the way we've done things is not as effective as it used to be. And I hear that everywhere. You know, I used to seminar market. It doesn't work as well anymore. I used to cold call. It doesn't work. I, like, I still know people who built their business off cold calling. It doesn't work as well anymore. Like There's all these things that we know used to work that didn't really work anymore, all of which I think are expressions of this problem of 
the denser and the more crowded the marketplace gets, the less it works to just be a generalist. You'll get prospects, but they won't be clients, and it's hard to even get good prospects. But I'm not sure. I don't think very many advisors at all have really gotten to what you have to do with the next step, which really I think is kind of a leap of faith. It's one I've done. I can vouch that it works, but really kind of this leap of faith of if you take a greater focus and you accept that you're going to have far fewer prospects, you can do business with so many more of them that you still end out with more business in the end. Right. And, and it's that transition. I don't think we've gotten there yet. And the reality is no advisor can serve 5,000 clients. You can serve, what, 150 150 well, somewhere if that, that i mean that's that's <laughs> always to me been one of the comic things about how many advisors fear like right. casting a narrower target net of like right but if i narrow it down like will i be able to get enough people to work with i'm like you can't work with them all you can't work with the clothes like i mean i know a huge number of advisors that have fantastic careers and make you know as much money as they need to support themselves their family their kids their retirement everything else with like 50 to 100 of their top quality clients. That's all. They don't right. even need more than that. Right. I'm like, you're like, there's 300 plus million people in this country and you only need 50 of them to have a good business and you're worried about being too narrow? Like, seriously? <laughs> I mean, I like, I, I, I met a guy out there. He specializes with bass fishermen. Because, you know, all fishermen would be too broad. Right. <laughs> bass fishermen. He he grew up on a lake. He used to be involved in bass fishing tournaments when he was young. He got involved in that community. I had no idea, but apparently bass fishing has, like, million-dollar prize purses. Like, they're big, they're big tournaments of bass fishing. And when people win prizes in tournaments, they he's the guy. Right. He's the guy. He's the guy that everybody calls. He's the guy everybody knows in that community. And, and so, you know, he's like... 30-something years old and manages something like $100 million. And, you know, 90% of his clients are bass fishermen. It's amazing. Uh, so, like, I'm like, you know, if you can build a wonderfully successful practice with bass fishermen, I'm sorry, but, like, you, you, good luck coming up with a narrower niche than that. That that wouldn't work, right? Like, amazing. it's, it's uh, because we need so few people. Absolutely. You know, like, if I was trying to build a business and I'm some large national firm, and like I need something that gets at least 10,000 new clients a year or right. you know, 100,000 or millions if I'm a tech company. Right. Uh, I Like the, the whole, all the equation, the math changes and everything right. looks different. You have to tackle in a different way. But in a world where like I just need 50 to 100 top quality clients to have an amazing life and business right. and career, you like you can't go too, too narrow. Right. Right. Like you don't even have to say you're in the, I mean, I, you know, I know people who have made niche businesses. Like, I just work with expatriates who are being repositioned from the U.S. to a particular country in Germany, in Europe or something. And, like, that's their niche, just cross-national expatriates between the U.S. and Germany. And, you know, there may not be a ton of them, but there are a few. They do tend to be in rather high-paying positions. They're often executives at companies. They have very unique specialized problems. How do you navigate, like, German tax law and U.S. tax law? Um amazing niche and like i mean i know one guy that does this like he hardly sees any of his clients they're, they're a quarter of the way around the world so like 
you need 50 to 100 people, not even just out of the 300 million Americans, you need 50 to 100 people out of the, what are we at, like 7 billion exactly. on the planet? Exactly. And that's the, that's the, 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 the shift that just it seems people don't see. Yes, in the old days when you only could maybe work in your geographic area face-to-face, how would you find 50 people that were bass yeah. fishermen in one town? There's one guy and he's the one who doesn't win the tournament. Right, right, right. But in a world where you can instantly connect with anyone across the world, it, it's it's game changing. Yeah, and and to me, like the, you know, I guess like it's 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 come at the right time for us. You know, the the good fortune of of the world and how it evolves. Um, like to me, the 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 rise of the internet and just sort of everything around how we can find and connect with people online and just find information and find service providers and find experts and all these different things. Uh, you know, the the internet is the enabler for niche and specialization of work for advisors or really any industry or business going forward that uh, uh, like that's what makes it feasible to find the you know 50 human beings on the planet that fit your target clientele and you can actually get all 50 of them right in a way that you just couldn't before when you had you know you had to do it one-to-one face-to-face prospecting because there was no other way that people were going to find you right Michael, thank you for making the time, and thank you for all you do for the advisor community. From oh, my pleasure. One young Absolutely. advisor to uh, someone who's lived a few more years down. I've really benefited from your work, and I, I know you work a lot, and I thank you for it because it's oh, been very pleasure. helpful to me. Happy to help. Hope it's food for thought. Now, here's the takeaway that I'd like you to take from this interview. What do you need to be doing to set up the circumstances so that your career can be advanced in ways similar to Michael's? Because what he did... Maybe by accident, maybe not. Who knows if that was almost a false humility. What happens is in our society, uh, if, for example, if I came on here and said, every action that I've taken over the course of the last decade of my life is very, was very carefully calculated to provide the maximum, you know, <laughs> the maximum effect, that would sound a little bit strange to you. So it would sound a little bit scheming to many people. So often we don't do that. And, and by the way, I'm not accusing Michael or anybody of shading the truth. We just have a more positive memory of ourselves uh, usually in our past successes, and we try to, uh, we try to downplay them. So oh, I did well in school, but you know, it, was, it came easy for me instead of saying, yeah, I worked you know, these 18 hours every, to study for every test or whatever the example is in your situation. So I'm sure that it was probably a little bit accidental, but I'm also sure that it was probably also just that Michael has put in a lot of hours of hard work. So the key is the things that have been effective for him, can you take some lessons from those and apply them to your life? Can you apply some of his work ethic to your own situation. Maybe make some time to go and learn who the leaders are in your industry and attend those conferences and develop a subject matter expertise in a specific area that's useful in your world and then share that with others. You might share it in the form of written content and blogs or writing on industry magazines. You need to develop your writing skills, so it might be good to start with a blog. You don't have to get permission there, and that what's, that's what might get you broader distribution down the road. You might want to develop it with podcasting or with speaking or with a YouTube channel or with whatever other new technology comes down the pike. Whatever you choose, though, just know that you don't have to sit around and wait for things to happen by accident. You can put the work in that makes it more likely that you'll be able to achieve the results that you're looking for. Other thing I would just say, notice of Michael's story, I'll tell him and if you, if, I will tell you about him. 
and you would find this if you study his work. Michael is one of the most diligent, hardest working people I, can, I know of. He is consistent. He is prolific. He works hard. To me, that's comforting because I'm not sure that I can ever be really confident in talent. Some people have to seem, seem to have a built-in talent. Some people seem to have innate ability. But personally, for me, I've never really been all that confident in my built-in talent or in my innate ability. And I've always taken comfort from watching how hard some other people work and recognize that though I might not have natural skill, though I might not have natural ability, I can choose to work as hard as I am able to work. And then, in time, I might get some results. And I don't have to compare my results to someone else after all. Somebody else might have had a 10-year head start on me. Michael is certainly more influential in the financial advisor space than I am, but that's okay. He's been working at it for 15 years, and I don't need to worry about that. I can only just focus on controlling the things that I can control and ignore those things that I can't control. But I can choose how hard I work. I can choose to show up. I can choose to be consistent. I can choose to work hard to create interesting thoughts and useful information to share with other people. And then I can just simply do my bit. And then I can just simply choose to apply that over enough time for, hopefully, for me to get results. That's it. That's the primary things I wanted to share with you today. I hope that you enjoyed this interview. I hope it was helpful to you. I certainly enjoyed having a chance to talk with Michael, and I encourage you to check out the body of his work at kitsis.com. If you have a chance to see him speak or read any of his books or read any of his work, I would encourage you to check it out. For those of you who are interested in the very technical side of financial planning, it's the best online resource that I know of to have to help you answer some of your more technical questions. And if all you did was read through the archives of his blog, you would really have an excellent foundation for your knowledge. Thank you to those of you who are patrons of the show. Uh, The Patreon campaign is going well. As of today, as I record this, February 17, 2015, we currently have 37 patrons total of the show and $378 per month of monthly pledges. Our first goal is $2,000 per month, and when we get to $2,000 a month, we will replace the intro music... Yes, that intro music, although this is kind of the outro music. I might just replace the intro music and keep this as the outro music because I like to get dancing in the middle of the day whenever I do this, and music is generally good for that. But that's our initial goal. We're almost 25% of the way there. I'd say we're about 20% of the way there. So if you want to get there quickly, basically, let's see. If one-third of the audience contributed a buck a month, we would be at $2,000 a month. So you can do the math from there. But if every member of the audience contributed, uh, well, that my, my math is messed up. If you contributed a couple bucks a month or three bucks a month, we'd be done and we'd be at <laughs> 6000 a month. <laughs> it's kind of sad when a financial advisor can't do live math. Thank you also to those of you who have been leaving reviews on the new apps. If you'd like to listen to the show on your smartphone, just go to the App Store and download it you can find it in the iTunes App Store, in the Android, Google Play App Store, Windows Media App Store, and also in the Amazon App Store as well. Uh, thank you for leaving reviews on that app. I appreciate that. Uh, thank you for spreading the word about the show. If you find the content to be helpful, I just appreciate that so much. Uh, I know some, many of you will suggest the content in a forum or suggest it in an email to a friend, and that type of information is so helpful. Those are the referrals that really matter. Tell a friend. Just tell them. Check the App Store, and they can learn how to get rich and stay rich and how to do it in an efficient way. That's it. I'm out. Thank you for listening to today's show. If you'd like to contact me personally, 
My email address is joshua at radicalpersonalfinance.com. You can also connect with the show on Twitter, at RadicalPF, and at facebook.com slash radicalpersonalfinance. This show is intended to provide entertainment, education, and financial enlightenment. But your situation is unique, and I cannot deliver any actionable advice without knowing anything about you. Please, develop a team of professional advisors who you find to be caring, competent, and trustworthy, and consult them because they are the ones who can understand your specific needs, your specific goals, and provide specific answers to your questions. I've done my absolute best to be clear and accurate in today's show, but I'm one person and I make mistakes. If you spot a mistake in something I've said, please help me by coming to the show page and commenting so we can all learn together. Until tomorrow, thanks for being here.